This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, Buckeye fans, and welcome to another episode of the Bucknuts Happy Hour. I'm Patrick Murphy from Bucknuts and 247 Sports. Uh, today, we are going to talk to talk about some Buckeye football. We'll do that later. Fall camp, obviously, well into the, uh, the swing of things here. We're also going to have some special guests on to talk about the Big Ten expansion and kind of give a different perspective on things. We talk a lot about the, the team's already in the conference and the new team's coming in. Why don't we hear from some of the teams that are coming in? Uh, again, I'm Patrick Murphy from Bucknuts, and um, I've got here I, – I didn't have much in the fridge today for, for the happy hour, so I'm drinking a Labatt Blue. Uh, that was one of the few light beers. I figure we're recording this at 1 p.m. on Friday because uh, we were bringing our West Coast friends in, so I did figured I didn't need anything too crazy to uh, start off my weekend here, but – it didn't want to disappoint either, but let's get into it. Uh, I want to bring in two of our guys from the 247 Sports Network. We've got Eric Scapoli and Chris Fetters. Eric is from our Oregon site. Chris is from our Washington site. Guys, thanks for joining me. How are we doing today? Uh, it's not drinking hour yet, so not quite as good as you, I guess, but not too bad. Good morning, Patrick. I got my purple drink, so I'm good. There you go. I'll, I'll, have, uh, I'll have some beer for all three of us. How about that? All right. Lovely. Um, let's just get into it because when our message boards, kind of the people I talk to, everyone's talking about what's it going to be like for all these teams that have been in the Big Ten for years to, to kind of adapt to this new Big Ten, uh, this 18-team Big Ten with these West Coast teams. But I want to hear from you guys kind of your perspective 
on this expansion. Um, I'll start with you, Eric. First, I want to hear kind of your initial reaction when the news came out that, that Oregon was joining the Big Ten and, and maybe the reaction of the fan base as you kind of saw it from your perspective. Yeah, uh, I guess just to maybe take a step back and just go back a year. When, when USC and UCLA both left, um, I think the fan base was pretty split about what they wanted. Did they want to be, quote unquote, the Clemson type of program out West, you know, along with Washington, along with Utah, programs that have been very, very competitive. Did they want to be kind of the, one of the big boys in, the, in a smaller conference? And I think there was a section of the fan base that was totally on board with that. And another se- section that said, hey, look at the numbers. Look at the money. Look at what's being offered to USC and UCLA over there. And if that's something we can get in on, let's let's set that up. Let's get the wheels in motion. And so it was really a kind of a 50-50 split, I would say, until the last couple of months. And I think when you started to see some of, you know, I, you know, I guess when the Big 12 signed up and got their deal done, and then it, there wasn't a whole lot of positive momentum, it felt like, for several months thereafter – and then you started even, I think it was, what, Tuesday of, of last week? And the days are going to run together because it all happened so quickly. Um, when you started to see the Apple deal, there was, I think, kind of a shift. I think some of the fans who for a long time had said, no, 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 we want to stay out West. We want to keep these traditions kind of were relegated to the fact that doing so would come at a pretty significant cost long term for what this football program wants to be. And so I think ultimately it felt like from an Oregon fan base perspective, like, everybody you know can have their own sentimental kind of disappointment and kind of all of this historical stuff and i share tons of it living out in the west coast growing up in oregon going to school in washington um you know there's there's uh, just a sense of a lot is being lost but also that the fact is that there probably wasn't going to be much more to gain and in a weird way the more stable choice was actually to do the thing where you leave the conference you were already in. And I think that from a long-term perspective, I think a lot of people kind of were able to come to terms with that over the last week. Now there's still certainly fans that are going through uh, kind of the grips of, of, of loss of losing this conference, which meant so much and all of the memories and the rivalries and all of the stuff it provides. But I do think ultimately there's a lot of excitement at the, at the current stance of, okay, we can get and go out and play some big boy football. East Coast bias won't be working against us anymore. This, that, and the other. And I think there's just a, a, a little bit more, uh, I think pretty close to unanimously at this point, fans are really excited. And that was certainly not the case a couple of weeks or months ago. Chris, what about from the Washington perspective? Is, is it any different than kind of what Eric was saying from the, the Oregon side of things? I think in general, it's very similar to what Eric was talking about. I, I just remember when the, the news came that USC and UCLA were gone, that there was also kind of a bigger super conference talk as soon as that happened. Because yeah. then people kind of lumped it in and conflated the Oklahoma and Texas stuff. And I remember flat out, because I remember doing it on our boards on Dogman, where we were putting together 24 team super conferences in the, in the big 10, for instance, and the talk, you know, people were, people need to remember that the, the Pac-12 CEO group that gave, they gave the commissioner, George Klyavkov, they gave him almost a year to negotiate a media deal. So this thing has been in the ether forever. And the longer it went on, he was either going to be pulling the biggest rabbit out of his hat that anybody had ever seen in the media landscape, or he was just swinging and missing. And just and that's obviously what came to pass. Um, at the time, I think Washington fans were excited with the possibility, just because of the historical context between the two conferences and the Rose Bowl and everything else. 
so that if if a team like Washington was going to have to go to another conference, if they were pushed to move in this realignment shuffle, the Big Ten was pretty much the only conference that anyone would expect them to move to because of the history and tradition between the two conferences. So I think there's always been that kind of that bubbling underneath the surface. And then, and then last week, as Eric was saying, when all hell broke loose and you kind of lost track of the days, it was just one of those things where as soon as the Apple uh, details were established on the media thing, this thing was kind of fait accompli. I mean, I understand that there's the common narrative out there that uh, Anna Marie Kause, the Washington president, um, kind of did the death blow or hammer blow or however John Wilner described it. Um, but really, when USC and UCLA left, that was the real hammer blow. And that was kind of the, the thing that really got this fit, this whole realignment talk started, at least out on the West Coast. And it just took Washington and Oregon to say, look, th- this stuff with Apple is not going to float. We need more. And even even though even though Washington and Oregon are going to be going in on partial shares and all that kind of stuff, the fact is the numbers pencil out for the Huskies and the Ducks in the Big Ten in a way that they could never in the Pac-12 going forward. So that's that's kind of where everyone's at. And once people know the numbers and they kind of understand the the analysis that went involved, I think most Husky fans are they've got the two thoughts in mind. The, 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 they're super, super disappointed that the Pac-12 is blowing up. But they also understand that it was out of necessity that Washington is joining the Big Ten. And that's just kind of the reality of the situation. If if Washington and Oregon have been given other choices and they really had a very diff- difficult decision to make then that would be one thing. And it's not like Cal say and, and Washington athletic, uh, athletic director, Jen Cohen, you know, they just all of a sudden went, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. These were very difficult decisions for them. You don't screw up like a hundred years of history and just all of a sudden just throw it under the rug. Like it never happened. That said, when you looked at it, they didn't have a choice. They literally didn't have a choice because the PAC 12 commissioner gave them no choice. And so I think that's how it's ultimately going to be read in the history books. And that's probably the way it should be written. Chris, you mentioned the history. I think tradition has always been a big part of college football. And now we've kind of thrown a lot of that out the window with this realignment, with the transfer portal, with, you know, kind of everything that's happening in college football. When, when you look at the tradition of Washington and Eric, I'll ask you the same thing in a minute. Um, You know, how, how, do people feel about the change? You obviously you have the rivalry game that, that may or may not continue to be played. Um, you're going to be consistently competing against different teams across the country. It's, it's going to look a lot different. Is, is everyone prepared for, for that? Because I think that's kind of what everyone's trying to envision, right? Is how teams from across the country are going to be in one conference. How, how is that being viewed on the Washington side? Well, I think Washington fans love it. I think they're I think they're invigorated and enthused about the potential, you know, for Big Ten teams to come out to Husky Stadium in Seattle and vice versa. I mean, the idea of going to Happy Valley and playing in a whiteout, for instance. I mean, that's I've thought about that uh, just as a guy living in Seattle for decades now who covers who covers college football. What would that be like? That'd be incredible. So just those types of things. Yeah, but just those types of things. They're now reality. I mean, they could legitimately happen. You just don't have to hope that Penn State sees some recruiting value in coming out to Seattle for them to schedule a home and home anymore. You just don't have to worry about that. These, you know, who knows how the Big Ten schedulers are going to create these these future schedules going forward, but the idea that it exists is exciting. 
And it's and and I think it, it's it's going to enthuse a fan base that's frankly getting older. They need they need to get kind of reinvigorated and re-energized and 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 get back out to Husky Stadium because I think it's been kind of a trend out in the West Coast. And I can't say about college football in general, but out on the West Coast, it feels like the man caves are out doing the stadiums in terms of people staying home to watch games <laughs> on their big screen instead of going out to the games and and tailgating and doing all the the cool traditions that have always been a great part of college football. So generally speaking, the Washington fan base has been great about it. And I, and I know Eric will, can talk a little bit about how the Oregon State response has been, but the Washington State response to this has been horrific. I mean, they are beyond pissed at Washington because not only do they feel like they broke up the conference, but now they're just completely leaving them in the lurch. They have no idea what the future of the Apple Cup is going to be like. You know, it could be played in September now instead of November. Um, they're talking, you know, there's, there's, you know, there, there's the, it runs the gamut from just disappointment to we're going to sue you to all this, that, and the other thing. We're going to get the legislature involved, this, that. It's just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, and of course, time will not just heal the wounds, but it'll, it'll kind of let the dust settle on all this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, is that the Cougars are just, they're apoplectic. And you know what? If I was in their position, I probably would be pissed off as well. I mean, it's just when you get the rug thrown out from under you and you're one of the have-nots in a Power 5 conference, and everyone, every Power 5 conference has, has them, they all have them. And when you're on that dividing line and you're on the wrong side of the tracks, you can get run over. And that's exactly what happened to Washington State and Oregon State. And obviously the, the Washington State fans are lashing out. Yeah, Eric, similar question for you. Um, and, you know, Chris made a good point about the, the trips now that, that fans will get to take. Well, I want to talk to you about that in a minute. But high state fans I know are pretty excited. They missed that chance to go out to Eugene in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what has been the, the thought of Oregon fans, similar to Chris's answer, just in terms of what kind of you're leaving behind, but also what is ahead for Oregon and the fan base? Yeah, I think a lot of what Chris said is stands true with Oregon fans as well. I mean, just on a, my own personal level, I've been to every stadium in the Pac-12 multiple times. Um, you know, you know, I'll be going to, I think this will be the fifth straight year I'll go to every Oregon road football game. So I'll, I'll have been to all the stadiums numerous times. I've only been to the four teams that Oregon is leaving, you know, the West Coast footprint to move to the Big Ten, and then Columbus in 21 when Oregon went out there. Those are the only Big Ten stadiums I've been to. And I think that's the case for probably, you know, the majority of the fans. I don't think of a lot of the fans have been to these parts of the country. And, like, for me, again, I'll speak for my, myself. Like, I started loving going to Salt Lake City just to go cover Oregon playing Utah. It started that way. I started going out there almost every year just because I loved the area. There are going to be parts of the Midwest where fans will, I think, start to – have similar, uh, you know, kind of reactions to, and, and maybe, hey, I really liked it in, in this city. I'm not going to throw out the cities there to start any, you know, uh, you know, to, to create any favoritism amongst them. But, but yeah, I think there will be an element of that, and I think a couple of things that also um, sort of stand out that are, are, are benefits for for Oregon, and I, I would think Washington as well is, you know, from a recruiting perspective, I don't think this hurts at all. Um, you know, I think this will give, uh, I know Oregon tries to be and, and wants to be a national brand recruiting. They've done a really good job of establishing roots in, you know, certain parts of the Southeast and Texas over the years, just because uh, of coaches that have relationships, uh, to, you know, or, or history in those areas. I think this is going to give them an opportunity to develop better recruiting in the Midwest, an area where they haven't exactly 
um, landed a ton of recruits because now you can say, hey, come here and you're going to get go, go back to your part of the country, you know, three to four or five times a year, probably. Um, so I think there's that part. And then the other part, which is, I think, ultimately what undid the conference is the exposure element, which is <clears throat> like it or not playing on the Pac-12 network meant that nobody was able to see your games in other parts of the country. I can't tell you how many I got family out in Minnesota. They, you know, Oregon could have been the third best team in the country and they would never have been able to watch their games. And they're, you know, pseudo duck fans beside, you know, along with being gopher fans. So, you know, there's, there's that element of at least we're now going to be on TV and at least we're going to be seen by, uh, uh, you, you know, other parts of the country that had been kind of ignoring us. I think there's a, there's an element of that. And even the way the big 10 had, uh, you know, sort of presented and celebrated, you know, Oregon and Washington joining a couple of days ago on their network, like that stood out to Oregon fans too, of like, this just feels a lot more professional. This feels like a step up in terms of how things are going to be uh, represented. And I think that part, again, it's, it's obviously, you know, uh, kind of down the line in terms of the value, but like those sort of things also, I think stand out to Oregon fans in terms of like the big 10, you know, conference uh, has been tweeting out Oregon's uniform combinations today or something like that. Like that's the sort of, you know, press that they weren't getting necessarily in the PAC 12 in the same light. So uh, certainly reaching a different audience, which I know is exciting for, for Oregon fans. What about the Oregon state side of it? Where does that kind of stand? Very similar to what Chris just laid out. Um, you know, the, the, there have been, I think, two different state legislators that have already come out and said that there needs to be meetings about this, that Oregon shouldn't be, you know, allowed to, to leave Oregon State in the lurch. And to Chris's point, I, I mean, there are very there are similarities between Oregon and Oregon State and Washington and Washington State. It's just in terms of the schools. I mean, uh, no one's going to confuse Eugene for Seattle, but it is a bigger city than Pullman or Corvallis, right? And Corvallis is not a very large community, much like Pullman. Those are, I believe, the two smallest uh, communities that had football programs in the Pac-12. Um, and, you know, in terms of media market, not exactly attractive. And I think that obviously plays a role into where they're going to be left. But because of all those factors, like I, Oregon State, probably similar to Washington State, has always kind of felt like the little brother fighting the big brother here. And it kind of, I think, has felt like big brothers taking off, leaving us behind. Who's looking out for us? And because of the hatred on the football field that's already established, like this is a pretty, you know, it's a big rivalry every year. Like there is already animosity built in. And then when you throw on top of a narrative, which I don't even know if it's really accurate that Oregon and Washington really, I mean, maybe they were the final teams, but I don't even know if that's totally true because Colorado left a few days before um, Arizona and Arizona state, I think we're pretty clearly going to leave, even though their, uh, you know, presidents and athletic directors in the last couple of days have said something to the contrary. Like, I don't really think Oregon and Washington should be blamed, but I understand Oregon state and Washington state feeling like that's where the finger needs to be pointed, even though, even though I don't think it's personally justified. I want to get both of your opinions on the sports outside of football, uh, because I think this is obviously a football decision. Football drives everything. In, in our world, but how do you feel like in terms of travel and things like that? And Chris, I'll start with you on this. What does this do to Washington in terms of some of the other sports? I mean, men's basketball is obviously one, but you can go down the list of, of the sports that now are going to have to figure out traveling and, and they don't have the same kind of budgets, I imagine, as the, the football program. How do you see that happening for the non-revenue sports, so to speak? It's interesting because, you know, uh, Seattle Radio just had Heather Tarr on recently, who is the the softball coach for University of Washington. She's been there forever, alum. 
Uh, she's involved with USA softball as well. She's just very well recognized all the way around in the collegiate game. And, you know, bottom line is when you look at softball, they, it seems like they spend at least half of their, of their preseason, if not more on the road. I mean, they spent a ton, they spent two or three weeks down in Florida last year. And then sometimes they go to Arizona or they go to California. So, in regards to a, to a major pro, to a major program within Washington, like softball, for instance, I don't know how much of this really fundamentally changes. Now, obviously, being in a major hub like Seattle and SeaTac, that probably is going to offer up uh, less of a challenge than maybe what Eric would talk about in terms of trying to leave from Eugene, or do you have to go to Portland to do some things, or Corvallis? I mean, it, maybe logistically, it seems like it would be tougher just on spec from the outside looking in Eugene compared to Seattle. I don't know how necessarily all this stuff is going to pan out. I just know that when it comes to certain things, depending on how, you know, the normal schedules go, because you look at even things like tennis and golf and some of these other things, well, they normally go to places and tournaments in and well over other places in, in the country. Anyways, I remember men's and women's golf. Sometimes they've got tournaments all the way over in Hawaii. And, and so they're used to travel. They, I know that they've done, they've done tournaments in Florida before and, and other things. So I don't know if this is necessarily going to change too, too much. Um, and very specific to Washington is crew. I mean, they won national championships in the NCAA for the women and the IRA for the men. I don't know what the crew situation is in the Big Ten. So that's the only thing that's so specific to Washington that I think a lot of people are very curious to see how that goes. And the other thing that, that Patrick, you might be able to talk to, is that there was that old chestnut out there for a long time that if you were going to join the Big Ten, you'd have to have you'd have to have a wrestling program. Well, we know that's not necessarily true, but there are a lot of guys that are interested. In, would Washington entertain the idea of of going back to wrestling? Because arguably, one of the greatest wrestling matches of all time in intercollegiate athletics was Dan Gable losing, and he lost to a guy from Washington, and uh, a guy named Larry Owings. And it was like the only loss he ever had in college. It was like a massive deal at the time. But Washington really hasn't had a wrestling program in forever, at least as long as I've covered them. Not even It's never even been a thought. So you've got that. I know Washington has an intramural hockey team, for instance. Would they try to jump up and now all of a sudden be a part of the Big 12 scene with, with hockey? Would they jump into, you know, actual, inter, you know, beyond intramurals? So there's tons of questions that need to be asked about all this stuff. But in terms of your specific uh, question about travel and all that kind of stuff, I think there a lot of the non-revenue or Olympic sports already do a lot of traveling from Seattle to other parts of the country anyways because you know, we're in the upper north and it's just you've got to travel to get to where you need to be anyways in a lot of instances. And um, again, having USC and UCLA and Oregon as part of the West Coast contingent of the Big Ten is going to help mitigate some of that, obviously. I think having travel partners on the West Coast is always going to be very, very important. Kind of wonder if that means maybe Cal and Stanford could get added down the road. I know there's a lot of talk with them in the ACC and other conferences at this point, so I know that's a huge unknown. But if you add those, now all of a sudden you've got six. Um, you know That could end up being a really huge deal in terms of travel for the Olympic sports. And the other thing that I think is interesting, too, you mentioned basketball, switching the tournaments from Indianapolis to Vegas, for instance, every other year or every – second year or third year whatever that might mean there are some interesting possibilities as far as the as far as these things go that uh now having some teams on the west coast is gonna uh, gonna afford the big 10 i'm really excited to see how they proceed 
I would be very nervous for, and I can only speak for the Ohio State beat here, but I've seen the Ohio State beat in New Orleans and places like that. If they end up in Las Vegas, we could have some trouble. There could be some guys that don't make it home. I'll just put it that way. Um, and some of them, the we've lived to tell the tale. It's not a problem. All right, good. good. That's that's reassuring, at least. Uh, Eric, you mentioned you travel for every Oregon football game. Mm-hmm. Will this impact that at all? I know we've already yeah. started talking a little bit about, you know, just internally at Bucknuts and even with some of the other companies cover Ohio State. Uh, obviously, this changes your budget in terms of what, you know, flights and stuff across the country. I mean, the Big Ten's experienced that some with the additions of Maryland and Rutgers and Nebraska. I know the Pac-12 did as well. You mentioned going to, to Salt Lake City. Uh, but how does how does that come into play in your kind of thinking about things starting next season? It's a good question. And we haven't gotten far enough where we know exactly what it looks like. But I mean, where it is right now is we've got three full time staff writers on our site and, and two of us travel to every game. That's a flight away. And the three of us will drive like we'll drive to Seattle this year. We'll drive to Stanford. Those are drives we can make. You know, they're not Stanford's a pretty long drive. Seattle's not terrible, but we'll make those trips just from a driving perspective. And obviously we'll continue to be able to drive to Seattle in future years. But in terms of flying out, it might be a situation where it goes from we're only sending two people to one person to if we're going to go play a game, for example, at Rutgers and maybe Rutgers is let's say it's one of the last game of the year and Rutgers is one one game all season and there's just not a lot of fan interest. Maybe that's one where everybody stays home. We haven't we haven't finalized any of this, but that certainly is some of the discussion. Um, and that part is a little bit um, – it's going to take some time getting used to because one of the things I think has really helped our coverage is, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's like for, for you folks out there. I'm sure there's a larger traveling contingent. But out west for, for Oregon, like, we make up when we go out there. Like, and there's three of us, let's say, last year up in, up in Pullman. There's six or seven total reporters. We have like 50% of the people there. It could be a situation where Oregon goes out and plays Ohio State in a couple of years, and it's like five of us, and you know, only one of us is from our site or something like that. I mean, it just could be a different dynamic in terms of how it's presented. Um, I will say another thing that's kind of an unintended, you know, I guess, consequence, but it's a good thing, is uh, longer flights back mean more in our uninterrupted time to work the day after a game. I know you guys understand what that's like when you're coming back on that Sunday and you're going, I don't want to get home and then have to work for two hours. Well, hey, maybe now I can get three hours of it cranked away while I'm on the flight rather than a couple of, you know, one hour flights back from wherever I'm at out West. So I'm trying to put a positive spin, but it certainly will be something we have to discuss um, because I don't think there's going to be the budget to, to fly two people or even three people out to really any part of the Midwest or East coast. So. Yeah, and I think, you know, fans, how much do they travel, uh, especially as it becomes more regular? Like I said earlier, I know fans were disappointed not to be able to go to Eugene in 2020. I know tons of Ohio State fans made it out to Washington when they played in, I think it was 2007. But if, you know, if that's happening every few years, do you see as much of that you know, back and forth? I think will be very interesting. Also probably depends on when the games are scheduled and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, I want to get you guys both out on on this question. Chris, I'll start with you. How was the Big Ten viewed by the people that that you cover for prior to this announcement? And have you seen a shift in that viewpoint now that Washington is going to be in the Big Ten? No shift. Okay. A A lot of respect before, tons of respect now. Probably even more respect now because Washington's a part of it. So you're going to try to 
You know, in fact, if anything, I think Washington fans are pre- feeling pretty good about themselves and are, and are kind of feeling themselves just in general with how the football team's done. So I think on the one hand, you've got a ton of respect, and that's always been there. And I think the tradition, and again, when I talk about Washington having an older fan base, a lot of respect and tradition and, and connection with the, with the Rose Bowl, for instance. It's always been a big part of what's going on. Uh, even talked to Jamarcus Shepard, the the old uh, Purdue receivers coach, who's now the receivers coach at Washington, and he talked about, you know, they they haven't done anything yet. You know, they're trying to get those rings because he said, you know, you look at the '91 national championship team at Washington. Well, the team before was the team they won like ten or eleven games, and they went to Iowa uh, in the Rose Bowl and beat them. And these are always things that you think about when you talk about the uh, the best traditions of Washington football. And so going to the Big Ten, if they were going to have to move from the Pac-12, was going to be the natural connection. And so, again, a lot of respect there. But you're also seeing a a little undercurrent of, you know, they look at the recruiting rankings. They see the average per recruit. They're, you know, they're in sixth right now, I think, Washington is. Oregon's going to be a lot higher. They just – their recruiting is, is on a different level compared to Washington right now. That's something that Washington definitely has to improve when they're going up against these these other players from the Big Ten. That said, I think they feel like maybe Ohio State and Michigan have been put on a pedestal for a while, and they feel like Washington and Oregon could go in there and maybe upset the apple cart a little bit. And then the factor of USC and UCLA being there as well, um, they definitely don't want to feel like they're second fiddle to those teams. That's that that would be that's never been a thing that Washington fans have, 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 have um, wanted to discuss. I mean, they've always felt like they were on a par with USC, even though everyone knows that everything in the Pac-12 went through Los Angeles. I mean, that, that's that's the reason why Big Ten took those those LA teams just because of the market and just the prestige and the recruiting territory and everything that comes with it. So that's understood. But when it comes to the perception of whether or not Oregon or Washington have to play second fiddle to those teams, let alone Ohio state and Michigan, it's, it's a non-starter. Most Washington fans are like, no, we're going to come in or we're going to compete right away. And we're going to show, um, people that there is actual football that's played on the West Coast. So if anything, I think it's more regionality with the West Coast to the Midwest than it is Pac-12 to Big Ten. Because I think anybody who's following college football this year on a national scale knows that the Pac-12 right now has arguably the best football from top to bottom. You've got six teams in the top 25. Um, that's and that's the ultimate irony of this whole thing is that the Pac-12 is just starting to get it rolling and now it's going to be dissolved. So, but you know, ultimately, respect before, respect now, lots of lot probably more respect now. But I think it's one of those things where you you respect your opponents, but you don't fear any of them. And I'm sure that's going to be the um, kind of the undercurrent that Washington has when they come into the Big Ten next year. Eric, same question for you. Obviously, Oregon just played Ohio State a couple of years ago, so obviously there, there was some of that there. But what, what was the perspective? What is the perspective? I think Chris outlined it pretty accurately, too. 
um, you know, on the West Coast, and again, I spoke to it briefly earlier when I mentioned kind of not suddenly you'll be on the right side of the East Coast bias. There, there's always been a sense out West that these teams can compete with the very best. They aren't just given the opportunity to do that. And when I say these teams, I'm talking about the four that are heading West and really the three UCLA is uh, I wouldn't group in that with those same teams probably if I was just a basketball school. Yeah. If we're talking purely football, they've had moments, they've got a big name head coach who frankly hasn't been anywhere near as successful at his current job than anywhere he was previously at Oregon um, more than a decade ago. So, but I I, I do think these three fan bases in particular, Oregon, USC and Washington, uh, very proud fan bases, a lot of tradition historically, a lot of success. I mean, Oregon and Washington are the two teams in the Pac-12 that have played in the college football playoff, right? And so those two fan bases I, I really have – I mean, USC obviously is the brand like Chris laid out, but like Oregon and Washington and Utah really have been kind of carrying the mantle for this Pac-12 that's now going away for the better part of 15 years or so, maybe more. I don't know. I'd have to go back and, and look and see kind of when things shifted. Maybe maybe it is more. Um so I think there's a there's a level of like, hey, this is an opportunity for us to prove that what we felt for a while is true, which is we are capable of competing with the very best. And like, I will also say there is a ton of respect. I, I don't think Oregon fans, any rational fans come into the conference and think we are the biggest brand. We are the big boys. This is going to be our league. We're going to dominate. I don't think anybody looks at it that way. But I do think there is a sense of there might be a year, there might be multiple years where we can come in and be you know, the favorite or one of the two to three teams that really matter from this conference. And ultimately that's the goal too, right? Like is, is to, is, is to reach the college football playoff is to win a championship. I mean, Phil Knight hasn't exactly been um, bashful in terms of talking about what he wants to accomplish. He's not getting any younger. I, I've seen Phil around like he's, I don't want to, you know, get into mortality because that gets dangerous, but like he doesn't have a ton more seasons of Oregon football for them to try to win a championship. And so there's definitely a level of urgency and entering the Big Ten, I don't think, I think unquestionably gives Oregon a better opportunity to at least, you know, compete for those sort of things if they are able to take their game up a level because they've needed to do that. And I think entering the Big Ten from an Oregon perspective, you hope and pray that that's the outcome of this is that this doesn't become what happened with Nebraska, where you're a proud fan base that thought it was going to come and beat its chest and, and compete for championships. And instead you're stuck in mediocrity. Like that's not what you want the outcome to be. I think there's a lot of optimism that that won't be the case, but um, yeah, I think that's sort of where things are at, where, where it's a healthy dose of, we have a ton of respect for what Ohio state and Michigan have done. Those teams have played in bigger football games than we have for the most part over the last decade or so they've gone further and won national championships played for national championships. That's what we want to attain. And now being in that conference, if we're able to get up to that level, even if it's once or twice a decade, that gives us a chance to do something special that we haven't been able to do before. Awesome. Well, thank you both. I know, uh, not that you had to get up early to do this, but it is earlier out there than it is here. So I appreciate you both taking time out of your day. I think this gave some different insight to our fan base, and uh, hopefully you you guys will uh, will your your guys fan base will will watch this and find out some stuff too. Uh, I will be talking to you guys, I imagine, here in in the next year or so, and probably well beyond that as we kind of get into this new Big Ten. So. Uh, if you're watching this now or listening to this after the fact, get used to these two guys. I think we'll talk to them more. You guys both do a good job. Your sites do great jobs. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks again, guys. Uh, if you missed it from the top, if you're watching this live, that was Chris and Eric from our Washington and Oregon sites, respectively. 
they uh, agreed to come on to chat with us about what it's like from the teams coming into the Big Ten, um, the expansion, um, you know, kind of what what their what their perspective is on joining the Big Ten, as opposed to what we've mostly talked about, which is the uh, Ohio State and, and kind of the, the established teams in the Big Ten's perspective. So I thought they had some interesting things to say. If you missed any of that, if you're watching this live, you joined us late. We uh, will have this all archived. YouTube, podcast, Facebook, it's on Twitter, uh, wherever wherever you get your stuff. I'm now going to dive into Ohio State uh, and this week in fall camp, kind of recap a little bit of what we saw, what we heard. We were able to, what did we have? Three days of interviews this week. Um, we talked to the cornerbacks. We talked to uh, the what was it? I'll have to pull the schedule here. We had interviews. Um, we talked to a number of different groups. And then today we were able to go out to practice and watch all of practice. What do we have today? We had, um, oh, safeties, Ryan Day, which also featured the Gene Smith stuff, which we've already covered quite a bit. If you missed that, we did a podcast, Steve Hellwagon and I did earlier in the week. And then uh, we talked to the cornerbacks on Thursday. And then today, Friday, we were able to watch a full practice. So I'll get to what we learned from talking to guys first, I want to dive into today's Friday's practice. Uh, it was an interesting practice because I wouldn't exactly say anyone walked out of there super thrilled with how things went. Um, and I, I say that starting at the end, as we, as the practice ended and we were all about to leave, Mecca Buka gathered the group that he was working with and really kind of laid into them a little bit. And, you know, not in a bad way, but as a leader. And he was yelling with kind of the huddle around him about, we have two and a half weeks till the season starts. We go on the road to Indiana. And, you know, he made it clear that, you know, they, they don't start with Michigan. You have to win these games. We have to beat Indiana first. And he, he said, we can't even complete a bleeping screen pass, which was something that was a problem. And, and I'll kind of get into why I think that was later. Uh, but he, he really kind of laid into his team a little bit. And I don't want to say it was a sloppy practice necessarily, but just kind of lacking a little bit of energy. Um, some of that may have to do with a few guys were out uh, or at least not uh, doing everything. So they didn't have quite everybody in there, which I think is probably normal. But they also are going to do the the first scrimmage of, the, of fall camp on Saturday. So maybe some guys are kind of looking towards that. Um, it was just as I was standing there and kind of talking to people and watching the practice, like it wasn't quite at the same level as that first day of practice when when we were out there and they were in pads today, so so it was a more normal practice. Um, look, bad practices happen; they happen in preseason. They'll happen during the season. Uh, you, you can move past them. It's I don't want anyone to think this is the end of the world. And there were certainly good things that happened at today's practice. But it was just kind of weird that that was the vibe, that there wasn't just the energy that you, you expect when you go out to an Ohio State practice. And Emeka Buka made that very clear. Now, the Buckeyes are doing something, which I think on paper was really interesting. When they go to teams periods, when they go to 11-11 or 7-on-7 a lot of times, they split into two different fields. And so, like, one field today was the backup offensive line, and then it started with, um, Devin Brown 
and um, Buka, Julian Fleming, Carnell Tate, uh, Chip Trainum. And then on the other field, you had Kyle McCord and you had the starting offensive line and Marvin Harrison and Xavier Johnson and, you know, defense same, kind of broken up, not first team and first team and second team and second team. But the idea of it was to kind of split up the reps and basically run parts of practice where you're running almost two practices at once. I mean, you get more reps for everybody involved instead of having, you know, one field where the first team's in and everyone else is staying there watching. And then the second team goes in and everyone stands there watching. So I can completely understand, especially when you're trying to figure out a handful of things, why this was a good idea on paper. What I think what it has, I think it has in practice led to some sloppy play. So on the field, they call it field two with the backup offensive line. You also had Kenyatta Jackson and Caden Curry who were just, this Kenyatta Jackson really stood out to me, just dominating things. So whatever quarterback was back there had almost no time to throw. Uh, when they're working on these screen passes and, you know, shorter things, even then, you know, you're under pressure. And these it's not like C.J. Stroud coming off a Heisman Trophy finalist years back there and knows how to get the ball out quick and things like that. These are guys who are still trying to learn what it takes to be uh, a starting quarterback at, at, at Ohio State. And you know, the offensive line just isn't protecting. And, you know, you, you don't – while you do have a Mecca and you do have Julian, well, you don't have Marvin Harrison Jr. on that field either. And so it, it's not – I don't think it's working as well in practice as, as people thought. Now, look, we've been out there two days, the first day of practice and today, which I believe is practice eight. So I don't know if this is how it's being run every day. I am sure there are times when they don't do uh, this kind of broken up situation um but i think it led to because you're kind of mixing and matching and it's not first team against first team and second team against second team uh, you've seen some dysfunction for lack of a better term Uh, at least we did today and i think that was kind of a mecca buka's point um you know yeah you still need to bring the juice you still need to you know have that energy and everything but um you know it certainly was a struggle especially offensively for, for that team on, and I was mostly watching the second field. I did watch some on the first field, Dave Biddle. Um, and if you're a Bucknut subscriber, he, he posted already his observations on our practice report, which is on the site. You can read that. Um, it was just, I don't know. It was a weird day. And I don't think they got as much accomplished as they probably would have liked. And like Emeka Bukas said, you know, this there's two and a half weeks till the game. You could have these kind of practices in spring and you're disappointed with them, but you 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 have plenty of time to to continue to work that out. If you you know they they're calling them OTAs when the coaches are able to work with the players in the summer, you're allowed you're, you're okay with with some some sloppy so to speak practices in the summer. Right now, that that's a bit of a concern. Um, again, they happen. You move past them. I you it could be that they go out and have a great scrimmage on Saturday, and this doesn't matter at all, and you carry that on into next week, but. Uh, I thought I thought it was just interesting that I kind of got that vibe, and then Emeka Buka, knowing the meet, I mean, he was right in front of where we were standing, where this kind of huddle was, really laid into his guys. Now I don't want to be all doom and gloom, so I want to highlight some some really interesting things that happened today, and I'll, I'll start with the quarterbacks. I thought Kyle McCord, while not perfect, looked really good today. Um, 
while Devin Brown probably had the best throw of the day, which was a deep shot to uh, Jaden Ballard that uh, that was connected on. And it's, it's funny because they're doing these two fields and they're running basically the same plays. I don't know if it's exactly the same, but a lot of the plays are the same. So they're running off the same script on either field. So like if the timing works out, you can look at one and see a play and then look over here and see how the other quarterback runs, which again, I think is part of why they're doing it. But when Kyle McCord had the same play, he sort of, I think it was Julian Fleming uh, was the receiver and he, he threw it underneath a little bit, but it was a nice pass breakup by Denzel Burke, who another guy I thought played well today. Um, but I thought for the most part, Kyle McCord, while not doing anything crazy flashy, he did have a nice pass to Brandon Innes that they blow the whistle once it's clear that he's, he's caught it and gone, but it would have been a touchdown, which is a nice thing to see for the freshman. Um, what, what stood out to me with Kyle McCord is his, his pocket presence. And like I said, on one field, you're getting pressured a lot. On the other field, you're still getting pressured some because, and I'll get to kind of the offensive line combination here in a minute, you're, you're going against JT Tuomalau, who has looked really good in camp and a defensive line that I think is going to be really good. Um, but his ability and, and the offensive line did a decent job protecting him, but his ability to just move around in the pocket, he's not a big scrummer though. He did have a nice run today. Um, I think that is something that we haven't probably talked about enough. And I think that goes along with kind of his experience of being in the program and being behind a guy like CJ and having some, but he really moves well in the pocket and you know knows when to step up, knows when to step to the side, doesn't get you know the kind of ghosts, uh, so to speak, or, or concerns about guys coming. He, he feels it well, and I think that's something that's probably going to help him. Um, he did have some nice throws, as I mentioned. Devin Brown, I thought, also had some decent throws. Uh, he just didn't look as good to me. Um, again, we've only seen two days of practice. I do think when Ryan Day says, and he's used, said it a bunch of different ways, neck and neck, they're back and forth, whatever kind of expression um, you want to want to use or he wants to use. I do think that is true. I think that they are very much very close. But I think if you were just grading based off today, Kyle McCord was the better quarterback all around. Um, Devin Brown was just not as consistent, I would say. The offensive line, which I think is the bigger concern, because I think either guy could win um, win you games if I think they're both talented enough. It looks. I'm saying this with caution because after the first day of practice, and I wrote about this yesterday on Bucknuts, if you want to read it, it looks like the first day of practice, we had a good idea of what the offensive line was going to be. Josh Fryer at left tackle, Donovan Jackson, who we know is going to be the left guard, Carson Hinsman at center, Matthew Jones, we know is going to be the right guard. And then at right tackle, it was going to be a battle. Uh, it was Zen Mikowski who was taking most of the first team reps. Tegra Shibola was in there as well. And then, Josh goes by Jimmy now. Jimmy Simmons uh, was kind of with the second team. So it looks like, okay, four of those positions seem to be pretty much set. The right tackle seems to be the competition. Then Ryan Day says when we spoke to him on Wednesday that they're moving guys around on the offensive line outside of, well, they're moving guys around at tackle position, I guess I should say. And that the battle at center is really between Carson Hinsman and Victor Cutler, the transfer from Louisiana Monroe which is surprising because when we saw them on the first day, it was Carson Hinsman and Jacob James, the senior who missed out on spring practice, taking the first team reps and working with the top two quarterbacks and whatnot. So things have clearly changed. And so we went out today, the offensive line, most of the time with the first team was Jimmy Simmons at left tackle, 
Donovan Jackson at left guard. Carson Hensman mostly at, with the first-team center, though Victor Cutler was involved. Right guard was Matthew Jones, and then right tackle was Josh Fryer. So I don't know what to make of this. If they are continuing to just move guys around, and that was the the look they wanted to give today. Um, Ryan Day did say that this weekend with the scrimmage and, and this week in general was big for the offensive line. He thought he'd have more answers when he spoke next. Unfortunately, we didn't get to talk to him after practice, which I think would have been a uh, a, a good idea just to kind of address some of those things. Uh, I think the next time we speak with Ryan Day is going to be next Wednesday. So we'll, we'll certainly hear his thoughts on the offensive line then. But, man, I, I – it's, it just seems so long like Josh Fryer was going to be that left tackle. He even said that this summer, something else I wrote about, that he, you know, in his mind, he's the starting left tackle, even though it hadn't been announced yet. Well, now he's playing right tackle. And you, know, you had e- Enoch Viamahe playing with the second team left tackle. And, and at one point, Justin Fry yelled at him, you know, get your hand down on the ground when they're doing drills. He's like, if it feels comfortable, you're probably doing it wrong because he's been over at right tackle. So, you know, I, I guess – this is a fine time to mix and match, but you need to figure out this this offensive line right now. Not right now, I mean soon, um, because you want to get guys in their spots, sorted, and get the chemistry of that group, get them used to whichever quarterback is named the starter. So I don't know how much longer they're mixing and matching. I don't know if what we saw today is going to be the offensive line kind of going forward. It's It seems odd to me that this is – there's so much change there. Um, you know, I, I understand trying guys at some different spots a little bit, but that to me seems like what spring and summer was for more than fall camp when you're getting closer and closer to games. So that's certainly something we'll be monitoring. Again, I think the offensive line is, is the biggest question going into the season. I, I think the quarterbacks will figure it out and there's weapons around them, but if you can't protect, and I've said this over and over again, this off season, if you can't protect, it doesn't matter. Uh, flipping to the defensive side of the ball. I mentioned Kenyatta Jackson really popped for me today. Um, now he was going against that second offensive line group, which, man, uh, you better hope as, as a Buckeye fan that there aren't injuries or that these guys get better quick because it did not look good. Uh, but Kenyatta Jackson, pressure a lot of the time. Uh, Michael Hall Jr., the defensive tackle, who spent most of the last season injured with a shoulder injury, did leave, was looking good beforehand. I mean, physically he looks insane. Um you know, I think if he's healthy, he's going to have a monster year. But he left practice. Well, he'd suffered an injury. looked like left leg, which his ankle was pretty heavily taped already. So I couldn't tell if it was an ankle that they were looking at after he went down. Just kind of – it was a, a, a pass or a, a pass rush drill, and he just kind of went down, um, hobbled off. Trainers were looking at him, went over to the other field that they weren't working on kind of did some some jogs back and forth, pressing off, things like that. Um, did come back in, did work in the drills that were non-contact. When they went back to 11 v. 11, he was not out there. Doesn't look too serious, but for a guy who spent most of last season injured, you just you don't want to see that. Hopefully he gets back soon. Um, I liked Caden Curry today. Jack Sawyer didn't do much when they went. Didn't do much. He did some stuff. Didn't do the, the team stuff. JT Tumblau continues to be a monster. Um, it was interesting with Amorier Borg out, and uh, we, as, as we reported, Ryan Day said he's going to be out at least a couple months. They are now using freshman 
linebacker was a linebacker coming in. I was the thinking Arville Reese now at, at, I think he was at the Jack position, but lining up on the edge of the defensive line, you know, working in sort of what Mitchell Melton is doing, um, you know, defensive, you know, whatever you want to call it. He's rushing the passer as either a Jack or a defensive end, but more often than not, his hand wasn't on the ground. He was standing up more. So that's interesting to see. I think that, uh, if Amoye Bor is going to miss significant time, which it sounds like he might, then this is a guy who maybe long-term projects as a Jack defensive end anyway. And now he's getting some experience there early on. Uh, I, it'll be interesting to see what can come from that. I, I think a lot of people thought that that position down the road. So maybe this is just fast tracking the inevitable already. Uh, the linebackers, you know, you know what you're getting out of the, the, Front two in terms of Steel Chambers, Tommy Eichenberg, they continue to do their thing. Cody Simon, um, I think it was a fumble recovery. I didn't see who stripped it, but picked it up and ran it back for a touchdown. CJ Hicks flying all over the field. I think he looks good. He, you know, because they're splitting these two fields, he's generally playing uh, the Will linebacker position instead of the Jack position, which I think is where he's probably most likely to see at least you know, meaningful playing time this year, um, given the what you've got at linebacker already. The um, secondary, I think, is in really good plot spot. Um, Lathan, Lathan, or excuse me, Sonny Styles was in a green jersey, which I think met non-contact, though he did when they were in kind of team stuff. It wasn't like they were holding him back. He was involved. So um, unclear exactly what that was. Um, I think it was Malik Hartford also. The safety was also in one of those green jerseys. Um, and then look, the corners, I think it's a really fun group. I would like to see them all on one field together and see kind of what the, what the breakdown is. You know, Denzel Burks, your number one corner. I mentioned he broke up a pass um, earlier. The second spot, it's definitely between Jordan Hancock and Davis and Igbenosin. Um, they're both kind of working on the other field. And I think each has made some good plays. I really, I really like that trio. However, it breaks down, I think will be interesting. And then going back to the the safeties, Sonny Styles, you just everybody you talk to has great things to say about him. He looks good out there. If that that trio of him, Jihad Carter as the adjuster, the deep safety, and then Lathan Ransom in his bandit spot is seems to me to be, even though they won't say it yet, seems to me to be that starting group or at least the group that's going to play a lot. And I think gives, as I said last week gives you a lot of versatility in terms of what you can do there um, on the back end. Some other things, uh, I think it was Calvin Simpson Hunt had a nice pick six. Uh, it wasn't a long pick six. There was a, it wasn't a great throw, to be fair, but for, for a freshman who um, has, has just recently got on campus, good to see him make a play like that. Um, Evan Pryor, uh, Mayan Williams, I should mention that. Mayan Williams did not practice today. So Evan Pryor, a bit more involved. I, the running backs in general, they're, they're using them, or at least today, they were using them in uh, the pass game quite a bit. Travion Henderson had made a nice catch and then had a juke move uh, that just his, his feet kind of went out from under him. Uh, but I think if he'd been able to, to stay on his feet, and I don't remember who the defender was nearest him, but I think he, it, it would have been a nice move, and I think he was taken off. Uh, but Evan Pryor looked good in kind of that, uh, area in terms of, you know, that's where he's, he's most natural. I think catching the ball out of the backfield and they continue to work 
on some of these end arounds and things like that. I wonder how much we'll see that. Um, I do think, and I was talking to, to one of the other reporters there. I do think that uh, the, those can be more interesting. You can, you can diversify your offense a bit more, even if it's just pre-snap motion, but they are doing stuff where they're handing the ball to receivers or the pop passes, things like that. And I, I, it looks like from the two days we've been out there that there's more of that in the offense, at least that they're working on now. We'll see what, how much they use it, but more so than last year when they did it some. Um, I think Mekig Buka scored on a short one against Northwestern. Uh, you know, they did it. There was also a play that I thought was interesting. It was, I forget who the running back was, but Devin Brown, quarterback, and then running back to his right, to his left was G. Scott Jr., and G went as a lead blocker, similar to what Mitch Rossi did last year. And Ohio State's talked about, the coaches have talked about, you know, they don't necessarily have a Mitch Rossi, but you know, can they find somebody who can do some of those things? It was only one play. I didn't see it happen again. Maybe it did. But just an interesting idea there, especially given G Scott was a wide receiver and a guy who had to work on his blocking. So maybe that speaks positively for him and, and what he did. He was out there quite a bit. Um, I noticed him a lot. Joe Royer was another guy who didn't practice. So, um, you know, G Scott, I think got a lot more reps there, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I quickly, before we get off, get off of this, um, I want to talk about a few things that were said this week. I mentioned the cornerbacks. We talked to them on Thursday, Denzel Burke, who most of the times we've talked to him throughout his, his two completed seasons and now heading into his third, he's been very confident. Uh, not only confident about himself, but really confident about this cornerback room in general. And I, he just kept calling them dogs, which uh, he's, he uses that term quite a bit, but I don't think he uses it lightly. I think he really thinks highly of what Jordan Hancock and Davison Igbenosin can do. He talked about Davison Igbenosin's um, ability because of his length. He's just bigger and how much of a difference that makes having a healthy Jordan Hancock and what a difference that makes in terms of that. It does, you know, if I'm reading between the lines, it does sound like despite the fact that Ohio state has this loaded wide receiver room that uh, the cornerbacks out there are winning quite a bit. Um, Now we're also playing with a new offensive line, a changing offensive line. So quarterbacks who are also new are under pressure quite a bit, but um from what what we we heard, and you know, Tim Walton, the cornerbacks coach, said he he's growing in confidence with this group. I really like what they've got there. Um, Perry Eliano, the safeties coach, wouldn't commit to that trio that I mentioned: Jihad Carter, Lathan Ransom, Sonny Styles as the group. To me, it seems pretty obvious, but they they wouldn't commit to it verbally, publicly, um, and then. From Ryan Day's stuff, um, there were some interesting comments. When I asked him about that safety group, he went on a kind of longer answer, but he mentioned both Cody Simon and Jordan Hancock. Now, maybe he's just talking and, and those two defenders come into his mind of guys that are making plays, or maybe Jordan Hancock, this did not happen today, but is getting some reps at that nickel spot um, which we've heard about some of the younger corners playing there. We've seen some of the younger corners playing there. Maybe Cody Simon, um, who's a guy, you know, was part of uh, a three linebacker system when Ohio State 
two years ago played that. Maybe he's getting a look as a third linebacker slash bigger nickel type player out there. Um, but that's just something I caught that he mentioned those two in an answer about safeties. I'm just trying to read. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but something that, that I noticed, um, again, he keeps saying the quarterback competition is close. He did mention that he thinks this scrimmage will be big for both quarterbacks and that, you know, he hopes to have some more answers, maybe not starters, but some more answers come next week after they've gone through that scrimmage. Um, let me see. Let me pull up my notes here, see if there was anything else from Ryan Day's time. Um, I think that was most of the highlights, but he, uh, you know, he always, he always, you know, the big, I think the big thing was the offensive line, Lamari Abor being out. Um, he did talk about the, the addition of Oregon Washington, but kind of said, you know, he's so in the weeds of fall camp. He's not even thinking about down the road. So um, he did like what Jordan Hancock is bringing. He sees improvement there, um, sees the professional approach of Denzel Burke. And uh, yeah, I think that was, that was more or less it. So Look, a lot of good stuff. I think we're we're starting to see some things with Ohio State. We're starting to get some answers, but with those answers, there tends to be questions elsewhere. Uh, you know, welcome to fall camp. This is what this the preseason is all about. You know, if you came in with everything answered and you know no questions about this position or that position, or if you know nobody was winning and everything was stagnant from offensive defensive standpoint, there'd be nothing to talk about, right? That's what we do, and that's what we enjoy. So I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Um, if you tuned in live, uh, real quick, I did see some people commenting on the live comments here about the turf um, at Ohio State. They are actually using the grass fields, so um, injuries aren't necessarily um, because of the, the turf at those fields. It's They're on the they're grass field. And then uh, Sue asks, any news on Mayan's injury? No, he was not out there. He wasn't available today. That's all we know right now. I'm sure we'll get more uh, down the road. You hope it's nothing serious. Um, but the good news is if he does miss some time, I say has plenty of running backs, obviously Traven Henderson. I think Chip Trainum's looked really good both times we've been out there. Evan Pryor, Xavier Johnson can play back there. Um, you, you guys know the names. So, no, I don't have anything um, about that, but we'll, we'll find out more later. So going to wrap it up. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, for, thanks to both Eric and Chris from our Oregon and Washington sites for coming on and talking about the new additions to the Big Ten. As I said, when they signed off, I think you guys are going to see and hear more from them in the future as, as those two teams come into the conference and the Buckeyes are involved with them. And if you paid attention to this podcast last year, you know I like to talk to team writers uh, before the Buckeyes play a team each week. So those are guys that will probably be on the podcast. Hope you guys all have a good weekend. And um, we'll, we'll stick to Bucknuts this weekend. We'll try and find out what we can from the scrimmage on Saturday and then back at it next week. Let's see real quick what, the, what we've got on tap next week. Um, we've got tight ends Monday, I assume, actually, because we were supposed to talk to cornerbacks then, but we actually talked to them this past week instead of tight ends. And then O-line Tuesday, Ryan Day Wednesday, and D-line Thursday. So. Another busy week, and we'll have plenty of content on Bucknuts. Stay tuned to that, guys. Appreciate it, and uh, cheers.